Welcome to our Cross Lanes Baptist Church midweek time of prayer and devotion. And I'm thankful for you joining in with us, whether you're watching live or listening a little bit later on. A couple of announcements as we get started uh, this evening. Uh, we're going to have a prayer meeting on Sunday evening, this coming Sunday, and prayer service. That's going to be at 6 o'clock. And if you'd like to come out for that, we're going to live stream it. If you're not able to come or not ready to do that, uh, but we'd love for you to take part uh, in the time of prayer. And then next Wednesday evening, uh, we're going to have both in person and online. So for those of you that want to come in person, it'll be a family service. We're not going to have any children's activities or child care yet, uh, but we'd certainly love for you to come and be here in the room and uh, you'd be welcome to do that. Uh, it's been a long time, but uh, we'll continue our live stream for those that are uh, not ready to come, and that'll be good as well. So let's pray together, and then I'm going to get into the scripture with you in our study in Hosea. Father, thank you for the blessing of today. We're thankful for your grace in our lives, and uh, we are thankful for the opportunity to continue to make uh, some adjustments to our ministries and bring things back and continue to move in a good direction and we lift up those that are still dealing with various issues because of the circumstances that we find ourselves in and uh, we take uh, those seriously and and are burdened for people that are negatively affected and uh, thank you for the health that you've given uh, to those that uh, of us who are continuing on and ministering and serving and trying to encourage each other uh, thank you for the faithfulness of your church, and we pray for those in our church family that are going through uh, life things, whether it be surgeries or, or other things that they're dealing with right now. Uh, we're uh, just thankful for your grace and for you, uh, sustaining each one of us. And as we uh, look toward a prayer meeting this coming Sunday evening, uh, we anticipate being able to pray together uh, and then uh, look forward to having some folks back in the room next Wednesday evening, and Lord, uh, that you'd be glorified through that. And now as we turn our attention to Hosea, which is a, a rather difficult passage of Scripture, but, a, but an important one, I pray that you would help us to understand the significance of it and how it applies to our lives in a practical way. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in Hosea tonight. I introduced the study uh, the last time that we were together in the midweek devotion. And it's entitled, The Relentless Love of God. And we looked at the first three verses and then sort of an overview of the entire book. And as part of the minor prophets, it's minor not in message, but simply in length. And we come tonight to Hosea chapter 1 and chapter 2 in a message entitled, God's Grace in the Midst of Unfaithfulness. Now, I'm not going to read the entirety of these uh, two chapters just simply for uh, our time constraints. I am going to make reference to a number of verses uh, as I give you the different parts of it as we move along, uh, but I'd encourage you to go back and read it in, in its entirety for context, and hopefully that'll be helpful to you. Uh, just as a bit of review, Hosea is an autobiographical account that opens with Hosea's own marriage and family as part of his message. Uh, the rebellion of the people, God's unre unrelenting love, and then the call to repent are presented dramatically. Uh, Hosea's name roughly means salvation. 
His ministry covered around 40 years. His messages were directed mostly to the northern kingdom of Israel. It was a time that was relatively prosperous and politically successful, but decline was setting in. He began during Jeroboam's reign, uh, which appears to have been prosperous, and Amos and Hosea condemned the extravagance, and Hosea saw a number of kings, uh, all bad, uh, unfortunately, come and go. But the people repeatedly failed to look to the Lord for their strength. Idolatry, a spiritual failure, and moral corruption took hold. The book is structured around cycles of judgment and restoration. God would bring judgment on sin. He's made it certain that that was coming, but he always promised to bring his people back to himself. And God's love for Israel shines through clearly, even in the midst of the darkness of idolatry and injustice. So this message is a message about judgment, but it's also a message about hope. And as I introduced Hosea, I gave you three uh, basic uh, themes that run throughout the book. Uh, the theme of the marriage, which points to God and his relationship with his people. Throughout the Old Testament, one of the primary analogies of God's relationship with his people is that of a marriage. Uh, the people broke their vows to God and they succumbed to idolatry and they pursued their own selfish desires. Then we see in the New Testament that Jesus became the living embodiment of the bridegroom and a faithful husband to his bride, the church. God used the symbolism of marriage and a broken relationship to communicate his relentless love to his people. Now you remember that God told Hosea to marry Gomer. Uh, they married, uh, she fell into sin and turned away, forgot her husband and united with others. And just like Israel forgot God as her husband and chased after other gods. Not only is there a marriage, but there's also a message. And the message is that God was offended by the unfaithfulness of his people. Israel deserved judgment because they had chased after idols. They turned to other nations for help, and the word of God was foreign to them. Their behavior would ultimately lead to defeat at the hands of Assyria. Uh, and while Israel was unfaithful, God remained faithful. And then there's the message of the Messiah. God said that he would make a covenant with his people that would be in righteousness, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. All of this would come together in the finished work of Christ. So a marriage, a message, and a Messiah provide the backdrop for the entirety of what we find in Hosea. The first section that I want to show you as we look at chapters 1 and 2 together is a disastrous rebellion. Chapter 1 and verse 3, all the way through chapter 2 and verse 1. A disastrous rebellion. Now, as the story goes, Hosea took Gomer as his wife. Uh, they had three children who are referred to as children of promiscuity or children of unfaithfulness. Now, that brings into question their paternity, but at the very least, it brings into question uh, the behavior of the wife uh, while she was in this marriage relationship. Each of the names of the children signifies that judgment is coming. And you'll notice here in the scripture that the first one was to be named Jezreel. 
The valley of Jezreel was where Gideon had routed the Midianites and the 300 overcame 132,000. The name was intended to remind the people of the fury of Jehu, a former king of Israel, when he killed the 70 sons of Ahab in the city of Jezreel. He was reckless, and when God said that he would break Israel's bow, he means that that was their spirit, in a sense, of their attitude toward God. So this first child stands for the sin of Israel. God was going to bring bloodshed on them and put an end to the kingdom of Israel, and they would be recipients of the divine judgment of God. The second child's name is rather difficult, but uh, it is Lo-Ruhamah. The name means no compassion, literally, because there was a limit to the compassion uh, that God would show his people. Now, there is no limit to God's compassion in terms of his character, but there is a limit in terms of when people are called to respond to that compassion or that mercy. Uh, they're to answer that call from God and turn to him. And the continual unfaithfulness of Israel led them away from the compassion or the mercy of God. The third child was to be named Lo Amai. The name means literally not my people. Can you imagine being named uh, no compassion, not my people? Israel broke their covenant with God and they turned away from God and they turned to idols. Now we've got to ask the practical question, why is it that they did such a thing? After all, God had promised faithfulness. God had promised uh, that he would be with them. He had promised that he'd bless them if they'd only listen to what he said. So why would they do such a thing? The only answer that makes any sense is it was because an evil spirit of rebellion that they had in their soul that caused them to be stubborn against God and to do what they wanted to do rather than what God wanted them to do. I thought of a passage in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 22 and 23 where Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. But then here's what the, the, the part of the verse is that I want to draw particular attention to. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is an iniquity and idolatry. Let that sink in for just a moment. Rebellion against God is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is iniquity and idolatry. So in this one short passage, we find God's heart on obedience, that he would prefer obedience over sacrifice. The spirit behind rebellion and stubbornness and how God views them, along with the consequences of disobedience against God. Does God really look so strongly on the sin of rebellion against him so as to compare it to witchcraft? And the answer is yes. Why? Because rebellion is nothing more than willfully choosing to be led by another spirit rather than by the spirit of God. It is choosing to do the will and the work of the enemy in direct opposition to that of God's work. 
Stubbornness is sin, and it's choosing an idol over God. Now, we know from the Bible that there are major consequences for rebellion. God can only use those who will hear his voice and do what he says. Now, in Hosea, the Lord promised that he would restore his covenant people through his love for the people, that God would take his people back and he would love them again. Look at the promises that God makes. Long about verse 10, he speaks of the number of the Israelites being like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. That's an extreme statement to speak of the blessing that God would place on his people, that God would make good on the promise that he made to Abram in Genesis 12 and then reiterated in Genesis 15 and then said it again in Genesis 17. This is the promise coming to fruition. Or what about verse 11? He says, the Judeans and the Israelites will be gathered together. God promised that he was going to reunite and reconcile everybody who had rebelled against him and who were willing to turn to him and to be reconciled also to one another. God promised that he would restore the glory of his people and that God in his grace and, in, and his mercy would renew them. Notice chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, uh, call your brothers, uh, my people and your sisters. Mercy is shown. Or your translation might simply have here the word compassion. So here was the blessing that was coming. God would not give up on his people forever. Uh, the ones who were not loved ones would become loved ones. The one who were not his people would become his people. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans chapter 9 and verse 22 and following. He said, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for his glory. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now listen to verse 25. As he also says in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. I love this quote by John Stott. He wrote in the gospel, the outsiders have been welcomed inside, the aliens have become citizens, and the strangers are now beloved members of God's family. Judgment is not the last word. And that brings me to the second section of the passage tonight, uh, chapter 2 and verse 2 through verse 13. And here we find a devastating rebuke. We have a disastrous rebellion against God that now leads to a devastating rebuke. In verse 2, Hosea speaks again of his wife. There are also the words of God to his unfaithful Israel to his people. And verse 2 says, bring charges against your mother, bring charges, for she's not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight, 
and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. Friends, if you don't think God takes sin seriously, you need to read your Bible again. And if you don't think that God is concerned with our holiness because he's a holy God, you need to think again. Because the only way that we can truly understand what it means to know God and to be reconciled to him and to understand the magnitude of what he's done for us through his mercy is to understand what he has rescued us from. And essentially, Hosea is back to where he started in chapter 1 and verse 2 as he opens up chapter 2. Hosea and God are speaking as one about the faithlessness of their wives and about the judgment that was coming upon them. The mother had played the harlot and conceived these children and acted shamefully. Verse 9 says, She did not recognize that it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time. Now, the Bible says in Psalm 25 and verse 8, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. You see, God must instruct us in a way that is consistent with his character. And what God does is he mercifully speaks warnings in abundance. It's not just one time. God repeats it over and over again. And these warnings come to us in the form of a rebuke. A rebuke is to criticize or to reprove sharply. It's to reprimand us for something that we ought not be doing. And Jesus said in Revelation 3 and verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So who is it that God rebukes and disciplines? Who is it that God rebukes and disciplines in this world? It's those whom he loves. And as you know that God always rebukes us with 100% accuracy because he knows all things. God's never off base. He never has partial information. Not only does he know the actions that we've undertaken, he knows the motivations and the reasons behind what we've undertaken. And it was Jesus who rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus told his disciples when they worried, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Jesus told the crowds who followed him as he tried to withdraw, Truly I say to you, you're seeking me not because of that you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You see, we know that Jesus is love. He is. Every aspect of his being is. But his love does not violate his holiness. He routinely issued rebukes that people needed to hear. But you know what we have a tendency to do sometimes? We have a tendency to misunderstand correction and rebuke as rejection. We don't want to hear our faults. We don't want to be told that we're wrong. Why is that? Because we're a prideful people. What does pride do? It serves as the root for all sin. And yet God tells us everything that we need to hear. He's a good father. He cares about us and he brings us to the place that we need to be. So I'd say to you that if all you want to hear from God 
or his word is comfort and blessing, you got it all wrong. Because rebuke in our lives when we are wrong and doing wrong can, live, can lead us to lives that bear fruit. It was Paul who said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And that brings me to the third section in this message, chapter 2 and verse 14 through the end of the chapter in verse 23. And what we find here is a delightful restoration. A delightful restoration. Now these verses comprise what I think is one of the most beautiful love songs really in the Bible. And the reason that I would call it one of the most beautiful love songs in the Bible is because God sings it to his faithful, unfaithful wife Israel in a sense to bring them to a place of faithfulness. And what he's going to do is he's going to restore his people who had been wayward. Now, Hosea could have had Gomer stoned according to the law and condemned. But what did God command him to do? He commanded him to love her. The depths of the mercy and the forgiveness of God make no sense from a human perspective. And yet the Bible says we're to forgive as we've been forgiven so how could we understand such a restoration like this that God has done on our behalf and yet not extend it to others? How could you be holding on to grudges against other people in your life or wrongs that have been done against you in circumstances of life? How could you be holding on to those things when God has shown so much grace and mercy to you? Now what we find here is an image of redemption both literal and spiritual, because he told Hosea to get her back, to get his wife back, whatever the cost was. It would cost Hosea his resources to redeem her. And what God was leading up to was the restoration of his people Israel. Listen to these words from Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 and 10. He says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now listen to verse 10. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So now we find the same language, or at least very similar language, that's used in Hosea, in the writings of Paul, also the writings of Peter, and there are several things that God does for his rebellious people, for his rebellious wife, to win her back. First, God draws his people tenderly. Notice what he says in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness, and speak comfort to her. He would speak tenderly to her interesting all are guilty of unfaithfulness to god of loving things other than god with our devotion of chasing after things that are nothing more than idols rather than god there's a chase after the world there's a chase after pleasure there's a chase after per personal ambition but god has not cast us off 
And when God speaks, God speaks to the heart. Second, God promises hope and safety. Verse 15, I will give her her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall, shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. The valley of Achor is where Israel was first unfaithful to the Lord in the promised land. You remember just after Israel entered the land that Achan kept the forbidden spoils and caused the defeat of God's people at Ai? But now God promises that if they would come home, that Achor would no longer be a valley of trouble. Rather, it would be a door of hope. He says in verse 19, I will betroth you to me uh, forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. So what God promises here is that he would renew her again in purity, that he would take her as his wife forever. And three times God says, I will betroth you or I, I will take you forever as my wife as one who is precious to me. And what God is promising here is a fresh start that is built on his righteousness, on justice, on steadfast love, on mercy, and on faithfulness. Did you know that to restore means to bring something back to its original position? or uh, to repair it or to fully rebuild it. Kind of like Abraham's wells uh, had to be cleaned out and renamed by Isaac because they had been filled with the debris of the Philistines. It's God restoring what nobody else could restore. It's like Nehemiah who urged the fellow Jews to restore houses and fields uh, to their deprived brothers. Or what about Isaiah 1 in verse 27 where it says Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. You see, restoration happens when you cast yourself on the mercy of a righteous Redeemer who has loved you and given himself for you and who is able to cleanse you and to make you new. Now, what's the goal of all of this? Focus your eyes for a moment on verse 20. The second part. Here's the goal. And you shall know the Lord. And you shall know the Lord. That's the point. That we would know him. Having believed. And having our allegiance in him and walking with him by faith. And it's so beautiful here because when the Lord brings his people back to himself, he doesn't keep us at a distance. God doesn't keep us at arm's length. When God brings us back to himself, he withholds nothing from us. When we're separated from God in a spirit of rebellion, our lives are broken and our lives are empty. 
and God makes all things new and God brings us into a fullness of fellowship with him. So what I, I would say to you is it, it's not just a, a marriage in a symbolic way that's in view here. It's not just a, a message that's in view here. What's in view here is the gospel in the Old Testament. And what that says to all of us is that no matter where we've been in life, no matter how far down in the pit we've gotten ourselves, no matter how disastrous the consequences are, no matter how hopeless the situation seems to be, and even when the enemy is saying to us, you don't deserve to know God, who do you think you are that God would forgive you? Don't you know what you've done? God the Father opens his arms and he says, come home. Come home. The door is open so that you might know him. Maybe you've been walking with the Lord for a long time and you might not be in a real great place right now, spiritually speaking. Could be through just the dryness of drift. You might be in a valley right now and you don't really know what to do. You might not feel that hope and that assurance and that safety and that overwhelming love and compassion from God. And I want you to know that the same rings true for you. And here's the promise God makes in verse 23. I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. And that's the message for you tonight, that God says to you that he will be your God and you can be his people if you'll simply accept the invitation to come unto him. And that's the glorious hope of the gospel and the gospel that we submit to initially in our relationship with God is the same gospel by which we live. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father, thank you for this example in Hosea that I believe is both literal and symbolic. It's a warning to us of how dangerous a spirit of rebellion is, a spirit of disobedience that pushes back against you. It's a reminder of the rebuke that comes from you when we've gotten off track and our lives are not where they need to be. You speak to us not words that we want to hear. You speak to us words that we need to hear. God, I don't know what the words are that, that uh, folks need to hear through this message, but I pray that they would hear it clearly, that you care about where they are in their lives. And I pray that through it all, uh, that we would live in this gospel and this restoration that you've given to us in Christ through his life and his death and his resurrection, and that we would desire above anything else to know you. Thank you, God, for being our God. And thank you for the privilege of being called your people. And I pray it all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. God bless you, and I hope you have a good remainder of your week.